I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And then Marcelina Mama. Welcome back to another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Krista Byers Heimlein, a professor of developmental psychology at Concordia University, who specializes in infant development with a focus on language acquisition. She's particularly interested in infants growing up in bilingual environments and the mechanisms that they use to acquire two languages at the same time. In addition to her professional experience, Krista is also bilingual herself and is in the process of raising her daughter bilingual in Montreal, where French and English are spoken by a high percentage of the population. Hello, Krista. Thank you for joining us. Hi. So, Krista, um, can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, what languages you speak, and how you learned each of those languages? Sure. So, I'm originally from New Brunswick, which is a province in eastern Canada. It's actually an officially bilingual province, um, but the area of it that I was from spoke mostly English there. Um, so I, I was raised by two parents who are native English speakers who didn't really speak any other languages. Um, but what was available there was a French immersion program that was really, really popular. And my parents were very keen to have me in this program. Um, so I entered French immersion when I was nine and started learning French then. And I, I really clearly remember that experience of going from, you know, just knowing a few words of French uh, sort of in September to in January, at least having the feeling, and I don't know now, but feeling like, <laughs> oh, wow, now I can speak French. <laughs> um, so I, I learned, uh, you know, passable French in school. Um, and, uh, and then for university, I actually moved to Montreal to study at McGill University. I was excited uh, that it was a community where French was spoken and I, I did actually speak a little bit of French but it was towards the end of that degree that I met my now husband who is actually a, a native French speaker from France um, so um, he at that time when we met my French was so so his English was so so but we actually sort of improved each other's language as we went. Match made in heaven. <laughs> and what language do you speak with him right now? So we we speak both languages at home. It will kind of depend on the context. So we don't have any particular um, policies at our house or strategies in terms of what we need to speak. But definitely, I, I'm very fluent in French, but I feel a lot more comfortable in English. He's very fluent in English, but feels a lot more comfortable in French. So sometimes we'll each just speak our own language to each other and we might be having conversations in, in two languages at once or sometimes we might um, code switch or speak the other person's language um, it's pretty organic and also outside of the house just depending the situation that we're in uh, we'll use whatever language seems more appropriate so to you you said you you speak both languages at home and you have a daughter that i'm aware of i don't know if you have more children no, I have one daughter and she is uh, now seven years old. So she was born here in Montreal. And of course, as you mentioned in the intro, I'm a researcher that studies bilingual babies. So of course, this is kind of exciting that, wow, I'm going to have this baby and, um, you know, she's growing up in this bilingual household. And of course, my husband said, you know, no pressure, but your career is on the line here. Like if you if you don't get this right, what does this say <laughs> about your career? But um, but no, more seriously, um, you know, we're kind of in the ideal situation for raising a bilingual child. So, you know, we're in a household where, you know, we're both very strong in our native languages. Um, for me, I, I 
pretty much have always spoken English to her. I think that was just natural for me. I don't really know how to speak to a baby in French. You know, my my child <laughs> speech in French is, you know, uh, not, not very natural. So, you know, I, I always spoke to her in English when she was a baby. And it was the same for her, her, uh, her papa. He always spoke French to her. And, and that wasn't because we sort of decided that that was the way that we had to do it. But that was what made sense for our family. And so we do, you know, we do continue to speak both languages at home. And, um, you know, I, I, I live in Canada. So fortunately, we have a, a great parental leave policy here. So I was able to take a year um, to be home with her. And her dad yeah. was able to take several months as well to, to be home with us. Um, and we were able to, to travel to France in her first year and spend a lot of time with family. Um, but, but, you know, then she, she started going to daycare. And that was, um, you know, something that we had been looking for in a daycare. Wow, would it be possible to find a bilingual daycare? And, and we did. She actually ended up going to a few different daycares for different reasons, moving and, and other things. Um, but she, she did have some English in daycare, but in general, her daycares were mostly in French. So she got a lot of French from childcare and the English was mostly from home and family and, and other friends. And she actually now goes to a public school in French. Okay. So Krista, for those people listening from home who are not familiar with the situation, the linguistic situation in Canada, can you tell us a little bit more about what the language situation is in Montreal? Um, yeah. What is the official language over there and how, what are the languages that are spoken in the Quebec area and also in Montreal? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, Montreal is, is a really unique place linguistically. So if you think about, you know, Canada, Montreal's in Canada, Canada is an officially bilingual country. French and English are the official languages, but it's very multilingual in that many, many languages are spoken in Canada. And we actually did some research um, looking at kids in Canada and what languages they're hearing at home. And it's actually about 20% across the country are hearing two languages at home early in life. And then in big cities, it's like 25% of kids. And that's not necessarily French English. The official languages, that's all sorts of heritage languages because Canada has a, a lot of immigration. So that's, that's across Canada. Now, in terms of what's actually spoken across Canada, um, English is most commonly spoken in most provinces of Canada. There are, of course, um, large immigrant populations and francophone populations in, in several provinces. But here in Quebec, um, where Montreal is, the province where Montreal is, French is the official language in Quebec. Um, now, so, so, you know, if you went to a random place in Quebec, you would definitely expect to speak French and people might not speak English at all. Now, Montreal is special again because it's quite a bilingual city in everyday life. So French is the official language, but depending on the neighborhood, um, English might be spoken more. Um, typically, if you go into a store, you might speak French or English. And in terms of just the, the, the social situation, so for example, my daughter's friends, the neighborhood where we are, there's, there's both types of families. So there are families that speak more English, families that speak more French, bilingual families, and also lots of trilingual families. So trilingualism, very common in Montreal as well. So English, French, and a variety of other languages. So it's it's a very uh, linguistically rich kind of place. Um, but also if you want to raise a child to be bilingual in English and French, it's kind of a great situation because um, you can find schools in, in both languages. There, there are some restrictions in terms of which for public school, the language that you can choose for your child, but it, it is possible to, to find. Um, and in terms of activities, so for example, um, 
my daughter is taking a jujitsu class and the, the main teacher speaks French. I don't think he has a lot of proficiency in English, but the, the assistant teacher, she mostly speaks English. And so, you know, their kids speaking both languages in the same class and some kids are bilingual, and understand both. And some kids seem to be mostly monolingual and just understand one. And it, it's very organic in terms of just how that, that happens here. Well, I was going to ask her to expand a little bit more on the, the schooling. Um, mm -hmm. What kinds of schools or what kinds of public schools are there and how is it decided who goes to immersion schools and or who goes to non-immersion schools? How does that work? Right. So in the public school system, there are there are two systems. There's an English system and a French system. Um, and Quebec um, has had really um strong language laws that have been in place for a number of years now. And this was really to prevent the decline of French in Quebec. And it was really a concern and, and continues to be a concern for a lot of people to maintain the French language because it's really a little French island in a sea of English with American culture and English Canadian culture. So there are quite um, strict laws to protect the French language. For example, there's sign laws where the French on a sign has to be bigger in terms of its font than other languages that might be on the sign. And in terms of school, what that has meant is that most children uh, are expected to go to French public school. Um, and to go to English school, you have to have English eligibility. And how do you get English eligibility? You have to have a parent who went to school in English in Canada. So um, I went to school in French immersion, but through the English system and, and it, it is considered English school. So my daughter is English eligible through me. Yeah. Um, but say if uh, I have colleagues who are American, for example, who went to school in English in the United States and their children wouldn't be English eligible because they didn't go to school in English in Canada. So the idea is that um, immig immigrants, uh, the children of immigrants are expected to go into the French system to participate fully in the in French society and culture. Um, and within the English system, I say the English system, but it really is a bilingual education system. So there are different um, levels of emergence. So there's sort of 50-50 splits or there's other with more French. So all the kids in the English system are learning a lot of French. Uh, in the French system so far, there's very little English. So my daughter has uh, one English class a week, which is about an hour a week. And uh, despite about half the kids in her <laughs> in her class, Speaking English fluently, there's just one level of English. It's beginner English. So um, it's not really adapted to the level of those children. Cool. So what was the immersion system you attended as a kid? Was it 50-50 or was it mostly French? Yeah. So when I was a kid, it was it was really all French all day. So okay. um, with the exception of like, you know, one or two English classes a week, it, it was French, uh, French during class. But there was no rules on the playground. So, we you know, we were all... Uh, Native English speaking kids would tend to speak English amongst ourselves, um, you know, when we had the liberty to, to do that. Right. So since you have experience with the immersion system and your daughter does as well, we wanted to ask you, uh, how does immersion schooling in the Quebec area help both individuals who are primary, primarily raised in English at home and for those who also speak French at home? How does that help both types of individuals? Yeah, so so. So my daughter is actually not in French immersion. She is in French school for uh, francophone children. Um, as and and the system also integrates children who um, don't speak uh, 
French at home. So it's not considered immersion per se. It's they they just sort of proceed <laughs> as they would with with any children. Um, I can say for my daughter, it's it's been working out very well. She's happy in school. She's doing really well. Um, you know, she does have, like many children, some a little bit of transfer between her English and her French. And sometimes you can see, uh, you know, when she writes sentences in French, there's a little bit of influence of the English grammar and structures. Um, but, but you know, generally, I, I see a lot of richness in that. So she's, for example, learning to read in French. Her only reading instruction is in French. Um, and we do occasionally pick up some English, you know, literacy materials at home. Um, and it's it was really surprising for me to see how much English she could read despite zero instruction in English and how much her English reading actually improved just by learning to read in mm -hmm. French. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so a quick follow-up question because I'm really curious. Um, is the French system, the schooling French system in Canada, very similar to the French uh, schooling system in France since your husband is French and he comes from France? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I can't speak to all of Canada because education is actually a, a provincial responsibility. So each province has a different education system. But in Quebec, no, the system is not like France. It's it's very different. And there are um, private schools that are more in the France French system, but the public system is is really a local system. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you um, highlighted that it's not a French immersion program. It's just school in French. It's um, we're looking at things through a United States lens. And even for our native Spanish speakers, the best we can offer them is an immersion program. Right, right. And, you know, the teachers are aware of the language background of the kids. So at the very first um, sort of parent teacher conference, the, the teacher mentioned that, you know, this was the first year that she had had so many kids who are actually native English speakers rather than um, the French speakers, and that was something that she was sort of keeping in mind in her teaching, that there might be certain parts that she might go a bit slower on and might emphasize a bit more, but it, it's not an immersion program in that the teachers, um, as far as I know, don't have extensive training on, you know, how to integrate kids from specific language backgrounds. I'm sure they touch on it in their training, but yeah, again, it is not an immersion program. Um, the default choice is to Bye. go into the French system. And there are, um, yeah, so there are, you know, for, for children who um, don't have a background in fr French, there are uh, what's called welcome classes. Okay. So these are classes for, for children who don't speak French to get them within a year or two, sort of up to a level where they could be in a mainstream class. Um, and, and those, some, I don't think there are any of those at my daughter's school, um, but there are other schools that are sort of magnet schools for that. Um, so. Now we want to talk a little bit about your uh, research. So um, can you talk a little bit about what you do, what your research focuses on, and how that has informed your language practices at home with your daughter, if they have it all? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm really interested in the in bilingualism and sort of our youngest learners, so babies and toddlers. And the idea here is that if you think about learning a first language or language acquisition, it's, it's really amazing process. I mean, you go from, you know, a little blob who doesn't know anything and is just listening to all these sounds. And if you're hearing one language, you somehow from that 
figure out, okay, there are words in here, there are sounds, you pick up the sounds of your native language, you start to pick out words from, you know, running speech, which unlike in the written language, you know, there's not actually pauses between words. So you have to figure out where those words are, what they mean, there's a grammatical structure, how does that go, there's social rule. I mean, there's so much um, in language, as you guys know. And so I'm fascinated at the fact that for babies growing up with two languages, like not only do they have to do that once, but they have to do that twice at the same time in two languages. How do they know that there are two languages? How do they keep track of them? How do they um, learn the two of them without getting confused? And, and we know that, you know, early on, and, and some people still do have this concern that, you know, growing up bilingual is just too much for babies. They're going to be confused. They're going to be delayed. It's going to cause all these kind of problems. And um, of course, that's not at all what we find. We find that, wow, they really can do this. They they can tell their languages apart. So they can hear the difference between different languages from, from birth, essentially. Um, that doesn't mean that they, they know that there are two languages, but they can kind of tell the difference, just like you might be able to tell the difference between, say, rap music and swing music. Okay, well, these two things sound different. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know all about them, but I know that they sound different. I like that. And from that, and, and from that seem to be able to, to build up these two language systems. Um, not that the path of their development is exactly identical to a baby learning just one language, but it is remarkably similar in terms of the milestones that they reach, the timing of those milestones, you know, what kind of development happens before other kind of development. I find all that really remarkable. And so what I'm trying to figure out is sort of how do they do that? How do they do it in those early years? Um, and we've learned a lot about it, but, you know, there's still a lot of parts that remain pretty mysterious. So can you summarize briefly how bilingual language acquisition is different from monolingual acquisition or different or similar? Um, just because parents are often concerned about milestones and delays, what what should they be expecting? Should they be expecting a delay or not? What differences, if any, should they expect? So what I, I think we've found in our research is that there are a lot more similarities than there are differences between monolingual and bilingual language acquisition. Um, so babies all come to the task of language learning with the same sort of skills. So the same learning abilities, the same perceptual skills. So they're, you know, they're, they're all bringing that. Um, to bear as they learn. Of course, the difference being that, you know, bilinguals have to kind of do it twice. So we have to think about, you know, how, how that's going to impact on their acquisition. Well, uh, we know that babies in the first year of life are really picking out the sounds of their native language or languages. And it's, of course, that learning that we do early in life, which is what could result in us having an accent if we try to learn a new language much uh, a bit later in life that we've kind of picked up on what the sounds are of our language and kind of started to ignore those sounds that aren't important. Well, bilingual babies have a lot more sounds that are sort of native to them, right? So, you know, they, they have in, in the example, you know, of my family, you know, you have all the French sounds and you have all the English sounds. Um, and that's that's a lot of sounds. So we do think that babies growing up bilingual might be a little bit more flexible in terms of how they listen to sounds, um, a little bit more open in terms of, uh, you know, versus, a, you know, waiting in a way to decide, okay, these are the only sounds I'm going to pay attention to. And these are the ones that I'm definitely going to ignore, because they, they do need to wait a little bit, <laughs> because there's a lot more um, going on. So but that's not something that we're really going to notice um, in everyday life as a parent. You know, that's something that we can measure. 
in the lab. I think what parents will start to notice is when their their children start um, understanding words and start saying words. Those are some of the first obvious outward signs of language development that people pick up on. Um, and so when it comes to word learning and vocabulary, what, what we should think about is how does a baby learn a word? And they learn a word from experience with words. You don't, you're not born with knowing the English words. You, you literally have to hear it enough times and in enough good context uh, to be like, oh, that's a dog. I got it. Dog. It's that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think of a, a bilingual, you know, maybe they see a dog at the park every day, but some of the time they're hearing the word dog and sometimes they're hearing in the other language. So for my daughter, the word chien. So their language is, is kind of divided <laughs> by, by the time that they hear the two languages. So if a, a monolingual child hears the dog 10 times, well, for the bilingual child, if they're perfectly balanced in their exposure, they're going to hear five times dog and five times chien. Um, but not every bilingual child is perfectly balanced, as, as you well know. So, you know, some children are hearing a lot of one language and only a little bit of another language. So it shouldn't be very surprising to us that if you only hear dog two times compared to a monolingual child who's hearing dog 10 times, well, you know, one, one kid is going to learn the word dog faster. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the bilingual child. It, it just means that, of course, you need enough experience to learn those things. So when we look at it in that perspective, we can see there's actually nothing wrong with bilingual children. And in fact, it seems that their rate of learning is as fast or possibly even faster than um, monolingual children, but they have twice as much to learn. So if we look at something like their vocabulary size, um, you ha- if you look at one language by itself, of course, it looks behind. My child has only heard the word five times. This child has heard the word dog 10 times. So, of course, you know, they need a few more times exposures to that word dog to, to figure it out. But if you start um, adding up across the two languages, right? So my daughter is not only going to learn the word dog, she's going to learn, learn the word chant. If we add up across the languages, we see that um, bilingual children know just as many words or even more words. And we're actually finding when it comes to uh, comprehending words or that early ability to understand different words, um, young bilinguals maybe are even able to understand even more words than young monolinguals when you count across the two languages. So I think that parents need to be really careful about um, how they're sort of measuring their children's development. And this this counts as well for, um, you know, children who might be working with professionals like speech language pathologists, um, that if you just apply a monolingual measurement to, to bilinguals, you're only getting half the story. And you might uh, mistakenly identify a problem or or a delay. So we do really need to keep in mind, you know, what what the bilingual child has to contend with, uh, you know, when before we we make a diagnosis. Not to say that bilingual children don't have any language problems ever. Of course, they do at the same rate as monolingual children. Yeah, Krista, I read in your professional bio uh, somewhere that you and your colleagues are using your findings to try to detect bilingual children at risk. For language impairment and delay. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so that's something that's very early stages for us, but essentially what we're trying to do is trying to get better measurements to understand what is normal, what does normal bilingual development look like so that we can start to identify atypical bilingual development. Um, and so sort of what I've been talking about is sort of on average. So if you take all the bilingual children's words in their two languages compared to a monolingual child, on average, they will know the same number or more words. But even within monolingual children, there's a huge amount of variability. And that variability is very normal in many cases. Some kids just 
speak earlier and and talk more than other kids. My daughter kind of didn't take her first steps till she was about 15 months old when a lot of kids, you know, might take them at 12 months old. And she had a really cute little friend who was taking her first steps at nine months old. So, you know, that my daughter was, you know, six months later. Um, but there's nothing abnormal about her physical development. She just uh, needed a little bit more time, just like she didn't lose her first tooth till she was seven. And other kids lost their first tooth when they were five. You know, these are just normal ranges of development. So what is hard is to figure out, okay, when when is what's happening just part of the, this normal average variation that we would expect to see? And when is something kind of uh, going wrong. And, and that's what we're trying to figure out. If we can figure out more, what is the normal average for bilinguals, but what also what is the normal variation, then we can start to pinpoint, okay, what could be the sign that, that something is going wrong. That's great. That's really helpful for parents, I think. Um, can you describe just nuts and bolts how you do the research? What kinds of tasks the babies do, how you know what they're understanding. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is the complicated thing of working with babies. So, um, you know, it's not like adults, you could get them to fill out a questionnaire or like, ask them to press a button. You know, babies have their own behaviors. They're not really going to listen to you when you <laughs> tell them, uh, you know, certain instructions. So essentially, we, we try to capitalize on their natural behaviors. And one of the best ways we have to do this um, is based on their looking behavior. So babies look at things in quite systematic ways. So say we want to do a study to understand, wow, do, do, do children of this age understand certain words? What we can do is we might show them a pair of objects on a screen. So say a, a dog and a car and play them a sentence like, look at the dog. And then we measure the proportion of time they look at the dog versus the car. And essentially, if children spend more time looking at the dog, then we have pretty good evidence that they understand the word dog. This is based on their natural looking behavior, because naturally, if you know the word dog and you see a dog and you hear it, then you're, you're going to look at the dog. Not 100% of the time, not every single time, but on average. So um, that's something really powerful, a really powerful method that we can have to other children's word comprehension. And then we can sort of adapt that in different ways. So um, one way you can do is um, mispronounce a word. So rather than look at the dog, look at the tog with a T. And so what would that show us? Well, we can measure how much do children then look at the dog. What we actually expect in this case, if they heard that mispronunciation, they should actually look at the dog less. So in this case, doing worse is kind of a good sign. That means they're like, dog, like what? What not exactly? Dog. Maybe it's this one, but like, I don't, it's not dog. Um, <laughs> and so if we see that kind of difference, then we know that children are really um, paying attention to those detailed sounds in words. We also do things like looking at different types of words. So for example, French and English um, share a lot of cognate words. So for example, like banana and banana. And we can see, well, do children listen to those words differently than words that are not cognates like apple and pum? And what we actually find is that kids detect mispronunciations more easily in banana banana than in apple pum which is a little bit surprising. You might oh. think, oh, banana, banana, they're going to yeah. be really flexible on this. They're I thought you were like, going to whatever. I don't know. <clears throat> That's exactly what we predicted in our study, but that is not what we found. So what we actually think is happening, and these are these are children who are about two years old, is that they're actually transferring across their languages. You're using that banana and banana to actually strengthen their sort of representations of that sound versus apple and pum. Again, their idea is that their experience is split half the time 
or so, they would hear Apple, half the time they hear pumps, so they haven't had enough time maybe to really be able to detect um, exactly what it sounds like wow. and when it's mispronounced. That's really cool. And what about the newborns? Because I know you test newborns as well. Do you look at yeah. what you're or? <clears throat> That'll wake them up. Yeah, so, <laughs> well, that actually is the biggest challenge is waking up newborns. So this was actually work that I did as a graduate student. And I, I can say that working with newborns is very, very difficult, um, exactly because you have to wake them up. And they, you know, a lot of people say, oh, be careful, the baby's sleeping, don't wake up sleeping baby. If you've tried to wake a newborn, they do not want to wake up when they're not ready. Mm -hmm. So I, I did become a bit of a, an expert in that, although you know, there's only so much you can do. Um, but in that work, what we did was we actually offered them a little pacifier that was connected to a pressure transducer in a computer and they were able to learn um, that they can control different sounds with their sucking. So it gave us hard suck on the pacifier, the computer would actually play a sound for them. So we did a study to see if they could distinguish different languages. Um, and this study is the study we did in Vancouver. So the, the languages were English and Tagalog, the Filipino language. And so, uh, you know, for, for one baby, we might play them a lot of uh, English sentences every time that they suck. And what we expect is at the beginning, they're sucking a lot, they're kind of excited. Boom. So neat. I love language. Newborns actually really love language. Um, and then after a few minutes, they would get kind of bored and their sucking would decrease. When that happened, we would switch the language on them. So if they'd been listening to English, we'd switch it to Tagalog. Half the babies, of course, got the reverse switch, starting Tagalog and switch to English. And we would measure if their sucking increased. And if their sucking increased compared to babies who didn't hear a language switch, that suggests that they can actually hear the difference between English and Tagalog. And what we found was um, babies who are exposed to either one language in the womb or two languages in the womb. And we know that the, the hearing of the fetus is developed in the third trimester. The mom's voice is very loud, so they are, they are listening. Um, but both those monolingual and bilingual newborns were able to tell the difference between those two languages. So there's something in place very early that could help babies wow. navigate bilingual environments. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, I have to yeah. say, I did take my son to the infant cognition lab at the University of Illinois, and it was the cutest thing ever. He had a blast every time we took him there. He was able to take a book home, and it was a great experience. So I definitely encourage parents who are listening and might be in the Montreal area to go to the lab. The kids love it. We can learn more about raising bilingual children and what that looks yeah. like in the early years. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's right. So our lab is the Concordia Infant Research Lab at infantresearch.ca. But also for those who are not in Montreal, there are many labs around the world who are studying um, babies. I'm actually part of a group that's called Many Babies, which is a consortium of uh, hundreds of baby researchers um, who are working together on studies to understand uh, babies' development around the world. So if you Google Many Babies, or if you just look up, if you have a local university to see if they have an infant or baby lab, all of these labs are, are looking for participants, um, sometimes monolingual, sometimes bilingual, sometimes they're uh, looking at language development, sometimes they're looking at other aspects of development like vision, um, but it's it's always really neat to participate in these studies and and uh, often babies get a certificate and a, a little gift. So in my lab, we we give uh, a really cute t-shirt with a baby on it that says Concordia oh, yeah. Infant Researcher. It's very cute, okay. but in other labs, they, they might have books or toys or other gifts. So kind of starting to wrap up, what message do you have for parents out there who might be on the fence about raising their kids bilingual or who are just struggling um, with teachers 
um, speech pathologist or family members who may be telling them, you know, this is going to confuse your child, your child is behind, or any of those negative messages about bilingualism? Yeah, so I would definitely say that it is very possible to raise a happy, vibrant, um, talkative, bilingual child. Um, but, you know, some contexts are a lot easier than other contexts, right? So the context I'm in in Montreal is probably one of the easiest, more straightforward contexts to, to raise a child who's going to be comfortable in both languages. And a lot of parents are facing an uphill battle where they are in terms of, especially if they're the only speaker um, in that child's life. And that is really challenging to transmit a language through just one person. So I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for parents who are experiencing those challenges. I would say for parents to keep in mind that babies learn language through listening, and you need to hear enough of each language to be able to learn it. Now, what is enough? We don't totally know exactly what enough is. We think the minimum might be around uh, 20 to 25% of the time. So for a baby who sleeps uh, about 12 hours a day, that's going to be at least 20 hours a week. So um, it's not realistic to think, okay, my baby spends two hours on Saturdays with grandma. It's not realistic to think that that child is going to become fluent in that language, although they, they might be familiar in that language, there are other benefits to that. So uh, really objectively looking at your child's exposure to each of those languages, you know, seeing, okay, how many hours a week is it? Um, and if it is it's not that many hours strategizing, okay, are there ways to increase that exposure? Are there play groups? Are there schools? Are there daycares? Are there nannies? Is travel possible? What is possible for me in my family context? Um, and not everything is possible for, for everyone. And I guess I, I, you know, something else that I think is that parents have a lot of competing priorities in their lives and language is one of them. So it's definitely very important and it, it might be a core value for some families. Um, but for, for other families, you know, it unfortunately may not rise to the top. So if, if I had to, um, you know, commute an hour and a half with my daughter to bring her to school in a certain language, mm -hmm. that just might not be the right choice for my family. So I think, you know, each family has to take a survey of their situation and, uh, you know, make the choices that are right for them. Yeah, sure. That's really smart. So to wrap it up in your personal and professional experience, what are some of the advantages of being raised bilingual or multilingual from a societal and a cognitive standpoint? What have you found personally and in your research? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the biggest benefits are really straightforward of being bilingual is just being able to speak to more people and to the various important <laughs> people in your life. <laughs> so, um, you know, I could I could put my child in a class to learn a very obscure language that no one speaks around her, but she's not going to learn it. She's not going to want to learn it. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't think that would ultimately be beneficial to her. You know, for my daughter, speaking French and English is something that's very obviously important. It's important to speak to her parents. It's important for her grandparents. It's important for her play with her friends. She has friends who speak each language. Um, so, I, you know, it, it, it may be very obvious to say, say that, but that's going to be the main reason that we want kids to be bilingual. Beyond that, of course, there are economic benefits, you know, there are jobs that become open to people who are bilingual. Um, there are potentially some cognitive benefits, but, you know, I really don't think that should be the main motivator. Those cognitive benefits, if they exist, are seem pretty small. We might be able to observe them in the lab. We don't necessarily, they're not very obvious in everyday life. Um, mm -hmm. 
And uh, we know that if they exist, there's probably lots of other ways to gain those cognitive benefits. So, you know, music lessons might give you the same kind of benefits as being bilingual. So I think, you know, bilingualism is something that is very embedded in a social world. And that's, that's something that we should think about. So, you know, in terms of transmitting a language, um, you know, I, I think it's, um, I think it's sad if, if parents get a message that their home language should not be spoken. Uh, if it's a home language, that's a language that's important to their family. And, and then that makes it important for them to, to transmit. Right. That's that's really beautiful. Getting me a little emotional over here. It is like people often focus <laughs> on those cognitive benefits of it kind of it's so prestigious to be bilingual. My child's a genius, but it's the it's people, it's family, it's your heritage, what's important to you. Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, childhood is one time to become bilingual, but lots of people become bilingual in adulthood as well. So mm -hmm. that's sort of another message. If, you know, for whatever family circumstances and reasons, um, it, it's not working out quite as you expected right now, you may nonetheless be giving your child a foundation and a love of language and appreciation that later on they'll be able to seek out those experiences um, and learn a new language in adulthood, which is perfectly wonderful as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking yeah, with us about this topic that we're obviously very passionate about. I think we learn a lot about the situation in Montreal. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for your time and for your expertise. Yeah, it was great to, to chat with you and get to know you. Yeah, no, th uh, thank you for doing this podcast. It's a, r a real service to the community. And I've listened to some of the episodes and I'm sure there's lots of parents who find a lot of support um, from having this kind of resource. All right. Well, then. Okay. I guess we'll um, call it an episode and leave it there, but we'll be back soon with another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Bye-bye, au revoir. Yeah. Au <laughs> If you ever have questions about us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes of Multilingual Mamas.